Morning, church. It's good to see you all. Some of you from first service, hanging out in second service this week. Stuck around that fire last night a little late, sleeping in, coming in. We're glad to have you here, too. All right, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're looking at the last verses in this chapter today, verses 46 through 50. Sermon title is Faith Family. A faith family. Every uh, family has its differences. Every family's got times of difficulty and times of disagreements. I think we can all agree on that. Every family's got their controversies. Every family's got their conflicts. Every family's got those problem people in the family. And you are to be commended for your self-control and love if just now you resist the urge to elbow the person next to you or crane your neck down the pew to look at that one person. If you refrain from doing so, well done. If you did not refrain from doing so, please see me after the service. Every family's got its differences and its disagreements, and we're in an interesting passage this morning because we find the same is true even for Jesus' own family. They differed, they disagreed, and it was on just such an occasion that Jesus declared who his true family is. In a moment of of division, really, Jesus drew a line to show us those who are outside and those who are inside his real family, his true family, his faith family. Our passage is Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. I invite you to follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord bless the preaching and the believing of his word. These verses speak about having a a personal and a familial relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, He came to bring us into relationship with himself and his Father. And I'm eager for us to benefit from this passage. But there's something we need to address first. Something that we're going to take a little time on this morning that's a little different than we normally do. But I need to point out something unusual in this passage that might raise some questions, that might even cause some confusion, depending upon what translation of the Bible you're using right now. If you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, which is what I preach from and many of you use, you might have noticed there is no verse 47 in your Bible. I'm also going to show hands. Who noticed and who didn't notice? Some of you noticed and thought, well, that's strange. 46, 48, what happened to 47? Where'd it go? I don't know. There's a little footnote at the end of verse 46, and if you follow it, it says... Some manuscripts insert verse 47. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. 
ESV footnotes this first, the NIV, the King James Version, the New King James Version, uh, you all have verse 47, so blessed are you. The NASB, the New American Standard uh, Bible, that has verse 47 bracketed off, so you've got it, but it's in brackets. So it's either there, or it's bracketed, or it's footnoted. So what do you do with a verse like that? Right? I mean, you come across these sometimes, and you may wonder, what do we do with a verse like that? Why is it like that? Uh, why do some have verse 47 and some don't have verse 47? Now, this highlights disagreement among scholars over uh, whether this, if this verse was a part of the original, uh, the original writing of Matthew's gospel, or if it was something added, inserted centuries later. Scholars disagree over this, and I want to take a few minutes uh, to address something I've never addressed before, which is the branch of biblical studies behind these kinds of decisions. Um, Sometimes we need to know, when we come to Bible verses like that, why they are the way that they are. We should understand this. Um, And so the science behind this, the branch of biblical studies behind this, is called textual criticism. And so we're going to talk for a few minutes about this. The New Testament, as we have it, the New Testament, as you have it on your phones or in, you know, in print or in the pew in front of you, uh, was originally written in Greek. Most of you probably know this. Uh, the first printed Greek New Testament happened in the year 1516, which means for about 1,500 years, uh, the New Testament was passed on through handwritten copies. Uh, we do not have the original manuscripts. Uh, We don't have the original parchment that Matthew or John or Paul wrote on or anything like that. All we have is copies. And that's not unusual for for things to not exist from being that old. Um, Usually all we have are copies of those kinds of documents, that age of documents. But that can raise the question, if all we have are copies, then is what we have right? Is what we have trustworthy? Is what we have reliable? Uh, You've probably played the game telephone, or you know the game telephone, right? You you start out with a phrase like, Auntie Jewel is so cool, and then it becomes, Auntie Jewel is so cruel, and then some little snarky kid is in there, and he switches it all around, and so it's, Auntie Jewel is a mule sitting on a stool, and it just grows. It just changes, right? And so the question is, does something like that happen with the Bible over these 2,000 years? That's what text critics determine. Uh, that's what they study, and that's what they determine. And, you know, there are tombs written on There are whole books, huge, massive works written on this, and it's all very technical. So I'm just going to give you a snippet, uh, a little maybe preview, in case you want to go study this more. Uh, I can recommend some books uh, after the sermon, uh, about why you can have confidence in the Bible that you have in your hands. When a text critic sits down to do their work, when they're comparing ancient manuscripts to try and discern what the original said, here is an example of what they are working with. Let me give you some numbers for comparison. Caesar's Gallic Gallic Wars was a work written in about 50 BC, and we have 251 full and fragmented manuscripts in the language it was originally written in. 251, remember, we're talking about copies. Ancient copies, but copies. They're not, we don't have the original. So 251 of those. Livy's Roman history was written in the first century, right around Jesus, and we have 473 full and fragmented manuscripts in the language it was originally written. 
So what they're doing is they're comparing and they're contrasting. They're gonna they're expecting you to find some mistakes, but they're saying, you know, okay, like we've got 357 of these that say, you know, has a the there, and we have a few of them over here that don't, and so it's more likely this is true. It's obviously this is true. So what they're doing is comparing copies, right? Uh, Tacitus's annuals was written in about 180. So again, all these are right around the time of Jesus. We have only 36 full and fragmented manuscripts of this one written in the language it was really written in. So there you have some numbers, 251, 473, 36, right? With the New Testament, we have 5,856. 5,856 handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament preserved for us, and no other ancient book comes close to that. Not even close to that. Uh, and so what we have there, uh, well, that's even just in the Greek. And then if you add in other ancient languages and copies of that, I think we have like 25,000 plus something of those as well. So over 30,000 ancient manuscripts that we can compare and contrast. And what that does is it gives you a wealth of, it gives you a whole wealth of, of, of works to work with, manuscripts to work with, to compare, to see if it was original or not. Here's the way Daniel Wallace, who is a very prominent text critic, puts it. New Testament scholars face an embarrassment of riches compared to the data of classical Greek and Latin scholars uh, that they have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remain, remains number, or remaining number, no more than 20 copies. So I gave you some in the hundreds. Mostly it's in the 20s. We have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. Not only this, but the existent manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time he wrote, meaning the earliest copies we have are about 500 years after the original. But for the New Testament, we wait mere decades for surviving copies. So he's saying we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do the average Greco-Roman author, and there are only a few decades between the original New Testament writings and the earliest copies uh, versus hundreds of years of most ancient manuscripts and their earliest copies. And this is why, uh, this is just a sample of what textual critics are looking at, but this is why we can have such a high degree of confidence that what we have in front of us, what we have written or on our phones is so very close to the original. We have so much data to look at and compare at and to make judgments on. And yet, even with all of that, even though we can be 99% sure, there are still a few verses, like verse 47 here, that we just can't say with the same level of confidence. And so, these are called textual variants. Textual variants. Uh, and most Bible translations will be very faithful to note them for you, uh, like the ESV or the NASB or the New King James Version. They're gonna note that for you. This is not some kind of hidden knowledge. Uh, we don't pretend these verses don't exist. It's, you know, it's not like the Wizard of Oz, like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Like we, we, we don't like try to fake out. And, like no, we're just upfront. Like we don't know about these few verses. We can't say for sure. We can make the best judgment we can, but we don't know for sure. So what do you do with these textual variants? What do you do with them? If we can't be sure, what do we do with them? Well, what we need to know about them is that none of these, these few handfuls that are in, in your scripture, in your Bible, none of them call into question any historical fact, and none of them change any Christian doctrine or practice. Uh, in fact, verse 47 in our passage is a really good example of it here. 
Because if you'll look at it, you'll notice that verse 47, or you can look in the footnote in the ESV, tells you essentially the same information you have in verse 46. Both just tell you that Jesus' mothers were outside the house he was in asking to speak with him. Uh, In one, they're asking, and in verse 47, it says someone relayed that to Jesus, the same information. And it's probably this repetition uh, that is why, is why some, like the ESV, believes that this was just an accident. They accidentally repeated this because it was a repetition. But it doesn't really matter. The point is, it doesn't change the story at all. It doesn't change doctrine. It doesn't pra- change practice anymore any at all. And that's what you need to know, that this kind of thing, this kind of thing, like these variants, they do happen when manuscripts get copied. And we're not naive about this. There's a lot of work that goes into making these kinds of judgments. And at the end of the day, none of them affect the substance of any passage at all, and neither should they affect your confidence in God's word at all. So listen, this is, this, when you come to a Bible passage like this one, when you come to a verse with a footnote or brackets around it or something, um, you could be tempted to think, can I trust this? Can I trust this? You could be tempted to wonder if you can trust your Bible. I would say, to the contrary, it should make you wonder at the fact that God has, in his sovereign providence, over centuries and centuries and centuries, preserved thousands of ancient manuscripts for us, unlike any other ancient manuscript there is. It is really a miraculous gift that God has given us so that we can have a very high degree of certainty that we have the original wording except in only a few verses, and those few verses are clearly marked for us. They do not change a single doctrine or practice of our faith, and so it should astound us. We should worship God for his providential provision for us, and we should be thankful. And that is my sermonette on the footnote of verse 46 in our passage. To our guest, this is normal. (laughs) To the rest of us, you can start the clock for the sermon now. (laughs) All right, so bringing us back into our passage and the substance of it, let me set the stage for the scene of our passage. Remember, what we've been saying the last few weeks, Jesus has been engaged in this extended confrontation with the Pharisees. Going back to verse 22, just back up to that, we had Jesus being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Uh, It was an audacious accusation. It was a scandalous slur. And Jesus replied by exposing both the irrationality of their accusations as well as the evil in their hearts. Now, Jesus has been very direct. He has been very forward. He has been very sharp. He has been very penetrating, telling them they are evil, and out of the evil in their heart comes their evil speech. Uh, Jesus has rebuked them. He has warned them that they are dangerously close, if not already guilty of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable skin, sin. And then after that, on top of all that, uh, as if they were unfazed, they say, show us a sign from heaven. Prove to us who you are. You've done a lot, but we want to see more. Uh, as if he were, you know, a, a, some kind of show to be put on. And in response to that, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation who has 
failed to see that something greater than Jonah is here, that something greater is Solomon is here right before their eyes, and Jesus has warned them that even though their religious house might look clean, might look orderly, it is in fact empty, it is in fact open to being indwelt by Satan himself. There's no life in you, Jesus is saying. There's no real spiritual life, and therefore you guys are actually in very grave danger. So we've seen in these, this section, I mean, everything's just getting heightened up. The heat is rising in this room. Uh, Jesus is meeting these guys head on, and he keeps upping it every single time. That's what's happening in verse 22 through 45. And while that's going on, if I can say, like, that's what's happening on the stage. In the meantime, off stage, something else has been happening. Off stage, something else has been going on that our passage clues us into. Several members of Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, are apparently making their way from Nazareth, where they live. They're making their way to Capernaum, where Jesus is ministering. It's about a 15-mile track, and they are coming to find Jesus. Now, park the car for a minute. Let's just talk about Jesus' family for a minute. A few notes on Jesus' family here. First, you'll notice in this passage, there's no, min- there's no mention of, of Jesus' earthly father, right? Just his mother and his brothers are coming. So we know Jesus' earthly father was Joseph, but we have no mention of Joseph after Luke chapter 2, uh, when Jesus was 12 years old and they took a trip to Jerusalem. Uh, So the presumption is Joseph is probably dead at this point. He's probably died. Jesus is an adult now. He probably died in the meantime, uh, and that's why he's not mentioned. We don't know that. That's just a guess. A second note about Jesus' family is that you probably know about his mom, Mary, um, because we talk about her every Christmas at the least, but you might not know about his siblings. You might not know about Jesus' siblings. So we have a a little... Thing about his siblings in the next chapter. If you'll turn over to chapter 13, just a page or two over, um, is, we learn a little bit about his siblings here. Picking up in verse 53, we read, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man Get this wisdom and these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Is not his mother called Mary? We know Mary. We know Jesus. What? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So this is not a passage about Jesus' family, and yet in it we learn about Jesus' family. We learn here that he, he apparently had a, a pretty good-sized family. Uh, he had at least two sisters. Uh, sisters is in the plural, uh, but I think a better guess is that there's probably more than just two because it says all his sisters. It sounds like there's, there's more than just two. It sounds like there's a lot of them. Um, and so it sounds like several sisters, but he had at least two of them we know, and, and at least four brothers, probably four since they're named, right? So James, Joseph, Simon, and Judah. Which, by the way, did you notice there's all these J's except for Simon? Like Joseph had a son named Jesus, James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. So I don't know if Simon is like the poor kid that got left out, 
or if he's like the special kid that gets the special name. So I don't know which it is, but it's kind of an interesting little aside that has nothing to do with anything. So Jesus had a pretty big family, at least six siblings, maybe more. All of them were younger than Jesus, and all of them technically were half-brothers and half-sisters to Jesus. We don't know anything else about his sisters after this passage. They're not mentioned again. But John does tell us at this point in Jesus' ministry that his brothers were not persuaded by him. Now, the Apostle John, in his gospel, John chapter 7, tells us that they were pious men, that they were good Jews, they attended the festivals, they were engaged in their religion, uh, but they were not, he says explicitly, they did not believe in him, Jesus. John chapter 7, verse 5. So they're going to later, they're going to eventually believe in Jesus, but they don't yet. Uh, later in 1 Corinthians chapter, 5, or no, chapter 9, we're told that Jesus' brothers are all in ministry. Uh, so we know that they become ministers. James becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem, and he'll author the book of James. Judah will write the book of Jude. So eventually they all get saved, they all go into ministry, but they don't believe in Jesus yet. Not in Matthew chapter 12, not in our passage. At this point in Jesus' ministry, they're not Christians, they don't believe in him, but they are concerned about him. In fact, Mark tells us in his parallel passage of this story, Mark tells us that they thought Jesus was crazy at this point. So in Mark 3, verse 21, we're told his family went out to seize him. This is the same story recorded for us in Mark. Mark says they went out to see him, seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. They thought he's crazy, and and it's not hard to imagine why. He's got all this ministry going on. He's got all this talk about him being the Messiah. He's got all these confrontations with the religious leaders. He's being polite and nice to Jews. He's, you know, affirming the faith of Roman soldiers. Like, what in the world is going on here? And so they're they're like, we gotta go talk to Jesus. We gotta have a family intervention. And so they're on their way. They're coming to talk to Jesus. They're coming to talk some sense into Jesus. They're probably gonna try to call to convince him to come home with them. And all that's been happening off stage while Jesus has been in this confrontation with the Pharisees. But in verse 46, the family steps onto the stage. Family comes into the scene, and this is what happens. Look again with me at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So we want to notice the confrontation with the Pharisees is still going on. Matthew says, while he was still speaking to the people. So Jesus is still engaged with the Pharisees. He's still teaching the crowd that's all around him. People are seated around Jesus. And then Jesus' mother and his brothers arrive on the scene. They find the house that he's teaching at. They can't get in because the crowd is too, too vast, too big. It's too packed. So they send Jesus a message. They tell him to tell, or they tell someone to tell him that his family is outside and would like to speak with him. Jesus gets the message. He's told where his family is, and Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach a very important truth. Verse 48 through 50, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and 
mother. So Jesus is making a remarkable claim in this passage. He's making a significant claim with significant implications, and we want to make sure that we study it carefully and that we understand what he's saying and that we consider carefully the implications of what he's saying. So, so we'll work through this very easily today. We're just going to consider the main truth Jesus is teaching and then three implications to it. The main truth Jesus is teaching. The first thing we need to see is the main truth Jesus is communicating here is he's saying he came to have a personal and familial relationship with us. That's the main truth he's communicating in this passage, that he came to save us into a personal and familial relationship with him, a deeper, a fuller, a far more reaching or more satisfying relationship than we can ever have with our own family. In fact, this is the only relationship that can really satisfy our soul. This is the relationship we were created for. Sin stole it away from us. Sin cut us off from it. But the salvation Jesus brings is to restore us into a personal and familial relationship with him and with his Father in heaven. And notice how he identifies those in this relationship. Verse 50 Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So first thing I love in this one is that he uses the word whoever. Every time I see like uh, this broadly inclusive language like that, like I just want to underline it in my brother, in my Bible. Whoever wants to get in on the family of God, whoever whosoever, it's open to you. Jesus is broadly inclusive in his invitation here. Anybody can get on this. Gentiles, Roman soldiers, harlots, thieves, tax collectors, anybody can get in on this. Whoever. Anyone can get in on this, but... We do not, this is where we need to make sure we understand what he's saying here, but we do not get into this relationship by doing the Father's will. That's what it can look like if you kind of read it a certain way. You can misunderstand him to be saying, you know, you get into this by doing the Father's will, but that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you're in on this, if you're in the family, you will be doing the will of God. And so doing God's will identifies us in relationship to God. It, it it's the evidence that we are in relationship with God. So it's the defining characteristic of, a, of the family. Your family may be like a sports family. Uh, you know, my extended family, on my wife's side, uh, they're all Chiefs fans. It's, it's the, they're the Chiefs. That's, that's what, part of what characterizes their family. Some of you are like outdoors people. And so you're the outdoor, or you're the hunting family, you know, like you have things that characterize your family. What characterizes the family of God? Doing the will of the Father. That's what we are about. That's the evidence that we are in this family. The way into this relationship is not by doing the will of God. That's the evidence. The way into this relationship is by recognizing and receiving the work Jesus is doing 
the will of God, the work Jesus is doing as Lord and Savior. It's by trusting in his saving work and finding in Jesus all that we need to do God's will. That's the way in. So the main truth of this passage is that Jesus came to have a personal and familial relationship with us. That's what this passage is all about. He didn't come to make us religious. He came to have a relationship with us. That's why when he's making this point, he stretches out his hands to his disciples around him. It's not the people outside the house, but the people inside the house who have been following him and who have received him and his teachings. They are his mothers. They are his brothers. They are his sisters. They are his family. That's the main truth of this passage. And so let's consider now three significant implications to this. Three significant implications. The first is this. What matters in this relationship is faith in Jesus, not proximity to Jesus. What matters in this relationship is faith in Jesus, not proximity to Jesus. Let me unpack that for you. Think about this. Jesus taught this truth, this significant and shocking truth about you can have a relationship with him on the occasion that his physical family showed up at his door. His family shows up outside the house and Jesus takes that opportunity to teach that those inside the house, those who actually receive him and follow him, are his true family. And with this, Jesus is illustrating for us something very significant, that it's faith in Jesus, not proximity to Jesus, that matters. So here's the idea. You can grow up right next to Jesus as his brothers did. You can grow up in the bedroom right next to Jesus, or maybe probably shared with Jesus. You can grow up in the same house with the same mom and dad. You can, you can attend the same synagogue as Jesus and get a front row seat for years to witness his perfect righteousness, which would be so infuriating, except he's so nice and loving and kind and understanding and patient. <laughs> You could watch his heart to serve. You could hear him talk about the sermons from the synagogue and how he would just so gently correct everything wrong that the preacher said. And you'd be thinking, what wisdom? Where did he get all this? You could have front row seats to all of that for years and not believe in Jesus. And maybe some of your parents need to hear that. You can raise your kids the best that you can in Christ. But that does not save them. Jesus saves them. Jesus' brothers were as close as you could get to Jesus. You couldn't ask to be closer to him than they were. But they were the family outside the house, not the family inside of it. And this directly applies to some of you. You attend church to be close to Jesus because you think that if you're close to him, that'll save you. You think if you can just stay close to Jesus and kind of do what he wants you to do, then you will be saved. But in truth, you don't know 
what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You're like his brothers. You know about Jesus. You've even lived close to Jesus. You've heard him talk. You've been around him, but you haven't really known him. You've never experienced him. You don't actually enjoy a relationship with him. I was thinking about this, and it, it reminded me of being in elementary school. Uh, back when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I can't remember exactly when, um, I had a girlfriend. Sadly, it was not the woman I'm married to now. That would be a great story. But I did have a girlfriend. <clears throat> I wrote her a note one day before we were, she's my girlfriend. Will you be my girlfriend? Circle, yes or no? And you're just praying, don't come back, no, don't come back, no, or don't come back, or. Sometimes they would like that, that maybe, like me, you know, or. Like, ah, oh, what do I do with that? I don't know. She sent it back. Yes. Yes. I had a girlfriend. And I don't think I spoke to her the rest of the year. <laughs> like, I was just busy playing with the guys out on the playground and being said, like, I don't think I spoke with her. Well, I mean, maybe a high or something, but like no more notes, no more sitting at the, wait, like we didn't sit together at lunch. Like there was, there was no relationship there. I thought there was until months later, she passed a note to me and said, I'm breaking up with you. And I wrote back saying, why? And she wrote back, cause you never talked to me. I didn't know I was supposed to, okay. I thought I was in relationship. I had no relationship. And that might be where some of you are, though. You have prayed a prayer. You have made a deal with God. You have sent him some kind of note. Circle yes or no. And God circled yes and sent it back to you. But you have not been in a relationship with him since. And that could be true for some of you who have grown up in this church. Proximity to Jesus is not enough. Coming to church is not enough. Reading your Bible, because you're supposed to, is not enough. Going to parent youth meetings is not enough. It's not about proximity to Jesus. It's not about closeness to Jesus like that. It's about being connected to Jesus in a personal relationship that's based on faith and what he has done to save you. So this is where some of you need to check the nature of your relationship with Jesus. Is it based on proximity to Jesus? You try to be close to him. Or is it based on faith that has given you a personal relationship with him? One where you read the Bible and you pray and you go to church not because you're supposed to, but because you want to talk with Jesus and hear from Jesus and you want to do the will of his Father. 
So that's the first implication we need to consider in light of this passage. The second is this. The second implication is as we come into relationship with Jesus, this relationship becomes the most important relationship for us. More important than even our closest earthly relationships. That's what Jesus illustrates for us here. We know he loved his family. We know especially he loved his mom. When he died on the cross, he committed her to the care of his most beloved disciple, John. Now, after his resurrection, he personally showed up to his brother James to prove himself as risen. So we know Jesus loved his family, but here in this passage, we see that those who are in a saving relationship with him, he identifies they are the closest to him. They are his nearest and dearest. And consequently, the same should be true for us. Our relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship we have. And so the question becomes, is this true for you? This is the morning, this is a passage where we take stock on that. Believing in Jesus, coming to Jesus, means entering into a deeply personal relationship with Jesus. Closer to him than you are to the closest person in your life, closest family member, closest friend, whatever. Jesus closer is to be closer than the ideal family. Is that how you would describe your relationship to Jesus? Or do you have a more intimate relationship with what? Your earthly family? Your friends? Your work? Your interest? TV, movies, music, hobbies, sports? Listen, Jesus is... None of those things are bad. That's not the point. Jesus is not saying his family is bad. That's not the point. The point is he is to be the first in your relationships. There's only one relationship that is never going to let you down. There's only one relationship that is only ever going to ultimately satisfy you. There's only one relationship that should be first in your life. So you need to evaluate your relationship with other things as compared to your relationship with Jesus Christ. A lot of us right now, Merrick prayed about it earlier, right? We're, we're seeing the crunch of the numbers right now with inflation. And a lot of people are talking about like, oh, I dusted off that budget and I was looking again. Like, where are we? How are we doing? And we're all feeling like, oh, I knew what we were supposed to be doing, but here's what we're actually doing. Well, I know we, many of us know what our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be like. What is it actually like? What is it actually like? Is he first in your life? Is he first in your affections? Is he first in your devotion? Is he first in your loyalty? Is he first in your calendar? Do you spend unhurried time with Jesus? Do you read the Bible like he's talking to you? Do you pray to him because he wants to converse with you? Is your relationship with Jesus first in your life? And then implication number three, last one, implication number three, in Christ, in this relationship with him, we are also brought into a familial relationship with his Father in heaven. In Jesus, we are brought into a close and familiar relationship with God. We should see this in verse 50. Verse 50. Jesus could have said, whoever does the will of God... But he doesn't say that. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and, and my mother. 
The logical connection and the implication here is Jesus saying, if you are my brother, if you are my sister, and God in heaven is my father, then God in heaven is your father as well. In Christ, we are brought into a close and familiar relationship with God the Father. This is, this is the doctrine of adoption, and it should be so precious to us. So precious. We talk a lot about the doctrine of justification, and that should be precious to us as well. Uh, it should be an incredible relief that we should experience knowing that our sins have been completely pardoned and that our standing before God in terms of of our rightness with God, our righteousness before God has been established on the basis of Christ's righteousness and not our own. It's what we're saying this morning. It's not the works that I have done. That is the doctrine of justification and it is of inestimable value, a profoundly precious thing, and yet there is something more, something still Wonderful. There is something about the doctrine of adoption that adds value even to that. In Christ, we have not only been declared not guilty, but we have also been declared, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. We have not just been justified, we have been adopted into God's family. We have been drawn in, we have been brought close, we have been given the love of the Father. And then all the benefits of family are now ours. All the benefits intended for our health and our good and our growth and our provision and our protection to say nothing of the experience of knowing your Father in heaven with all his perfect and powerful love. All that is now ours in Christ Jesus. You know, no matter what your relationship with your father or is or was like, um, I highly highlighted in first service uh, for those of you who don't know my parents attend this church my dad was in first service today is his birthday and so i wish him a happy birthday and i talked about how we have a great relationship i have such a good relationship with my dad now i didn't when i was younger it was horrible uh there is hope for any of you who are struggling with that but it's better now so much so that during the singing in first service this morning he leaned over and made fun of my black shirt and how i look like i'm trying to be like johnny cash and he tried to offer me money to like insert Johnny Cash lyrics into my sermon and I was like dad I'm trying to sing here and (laughs) the pastor cannot be bought dad (laughs) that's what I told him we have a great relationship now and I love my dad he's a great dad and many of you enjoy a great relationship with your dads too and that's a wonderful gift But friends, it is only a dim reflection of what it's like to know the true and perfect Father in heaven. Just a dim reflection. As I father my children, I want them to know there is only one relationship with a father that's perfect, and it's not with me. I will do my best. I want to do my best. I want my fatherly love and patience and provision and zeal for their good to reflect God's. But only his is perfect. Only his is constant. Only his is true. And if you have had or do have a bad relationship with your dad, what a comfort to know that in Christ you have a father in heaven who is perfect in love, perfect in patience, perfect in providential care. Listen, he knows you. 
He gets you. And he loves you. So much he was willing to send his son for you. He loves you so much and he's so zealously committed to your good all the time. He desires for you to come to him daily, to relate to him regularly. He desires for you to trust in him and to call on him as father. This is what Jesus stresses to us in the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. He keeps saying, your Father in heaven, your Father in heaven, your Father in heaven, your Father in heaven is perfect. Your Father in heaven is forgiving. Your Father in heaven cares for you and knows what you need before you even ask of it. Your Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward in secret. Probably a dozen times Jesus in that sermon refers to to God like that. He wants us to know the kind of relationship he brings us into with God that we can call him Abba, Father. In Christ, we have brought, been brought into the sweetest of relationships with God. He has adopted us as his own. I hope you leave here today reassured of the love the Father has for you. So in conclusion, and just to wrap all this up, The main truth Jesus is communicating here is that he came to save us not only out of of hell, but into a personal relationship with him. It's a relationship we enter into by faith. It's the most significant and the most satisfying relationship in our life, and it brings us into a familial relationship, not only with Jesus, but also with his Father in heaven. We are adopted into the family of God. This is what Christ, our elder brother, has done for us. To him be the the glory, great things he has done. Let's pray. Father, we have had the privilege today of hearing the words of your Son, And you have said so clearly that we are to listen to him. So having heard him, I ask that you would protect what you have deposited into our minds and into our hearts today. Don't let this all be a truth that we know and put on the shelf, but let it be a truth that we live by and that we live for. Personal relationship with you and with your Son, in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.